Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I am your host and salonier, Kara Martin-Snyder, and I am here to offer you sonic comfort and conversation, because I know if you're listening to this show, you do not have time for bullshit or burnout. So friends, you know how I have this whole podcast about not letting bullshit or burnout stop you? Well, turns out some bullshit happened in my life and my role got mega slowed over the last few weeks. The last time I was behind this microphone, I finished recording an interstitial bit because Craig was working on the past episode and just needed a couple sentences recorded on a Sunday morning. So I came upstairs in my pajamas, wearing socks, recorded what I needed to record, and when I finished... I missed the first stair in our set of stairs, and my computer and I took a ride down the stairs, and thankfully, nothing was broken. No bones were broken, nothing was bleeding, the laptop didn't even break. Unfortunately, my noggin had a little damage, and I done got concussed. And this is my second concussion in about five years. Ended up fainting, getting a trip in the ambulance to the emergency room, somehow managing to get home in time to eat the pork butt that I had put in the crock pot that morning. Anyways, it was an adventure of a day, but I'm feeling a little tweaky as I record today's intro. Because when I finish and hit save on this, I'm hoping that I don't fall down the stairs. And thankfully, Craig got me these really awesome slippers from L.L. Bean. They're the woman's sweater fleece slippers, which I think he found on Lifehacker or something like that. But they got the skid-proof bottoms. So hopefully, I will avoid any future calamities while recording this podcast. So people, protect your noggins. Also, share this episode with one person you know, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As someone who records in a 1950s sewing room covered in the shittiest, ugliest, faux wood paneling, I was admittedly a little intimidated by today's guest. Veronica Schreiber-Smith. Veronica is the CEO and founding principal of Vera Iconica Architecture, which specializes in wellness architecture, the art and science behind designing built environments that enhance human health and well-being. Veronica has practiced architecture, speaks, and leads think tanks all over the world, and I'm so stoked to have her drop by Le Vital Core Salon. Voila, meet Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. Hi, Kara. I'm so excited to have you here. I, I can't wait to dive in. I've been waiting for this chat all week. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So, Veronica, you are a pioneer in the wellness architecture space. You are leading, and I want to quote Vera Iconica's architecture's mission statement here, quote, a team of architecture and design professionals who specialize in how environments impact human well-being and the health of the planet. 
How does this inform your process as an architect or the type of projects that you take on? We take on a wide variety of types of projects, from civic projects to hospitality to residential. But really, there's an underlying quality or desire with all of our clients to help improve the well-being of their guests, employees, or families. And so that's kind of the underlying core of what we specialize in and the type of clients we get. And I want to make sure the listeners, because they don't get to see while they're listening right now, what some of these projects look like. Do you think you could kind of walk us through what one or two of these look and feel like? Every single project is really designed for that particular client or individual. So rather than having a similar look, it's all about creating an experience for each client. Some common themes that you'll find in our work are a use of natural materials, really beautiful, you know, rich textures that come from nature, and then clean lines, kind of blending traditional and contemporary aesthetics. Who are the types of clients that are reaching out and what are they trying to achieve with their build or their renovation? We get a lot of clients that are either striving for a healthier life, perhaps because they're environmentally sensitive or they have had some kind of health issue in the past, or we get clients that simply want to improve their lifestyle. You know, maybe they're working on some kind of self-growth or some kind of ideal lifestyle that they want to be uninhibited. And all too often, conventional construction techniques actually lead to buildings that are unhealthy and they can hurt our cognitive performance or they're the type of buildings where you might be blaming your afternoon lethargy on your lunch but it could actually be coming from the environment that you're surrounded by and you just there's not a lot of education or awareness of how much our surroundings impact us but these people for one reason or another have have come to realize the importance of the materials and surroundings and how that can play into their performance, their longevity, and even prevention of early aging. Definitely. And I've heard horror stories from friends and clients in the past. One example that sticks out with me is a woman that I know who went to law school the law school had just built a brand new law school. And of course, everyone was really excited to have a new building and new classrooms and new technology. And over the course of her years in law school, she was getting increasingly, increasingly sick and going through allergy testing and trying to figure out all of the things that it could be in elimination diets and really restricted her way of living. And it turns out she was having a reaction to the combination of all of the new materials and the off-gassing from that new building. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, people think that if a building is built to code, that it's good. Not that it's neutral or bad. We assume that if it's built to code, it's good. But that is an excellent example 
of something that was probably not only built to code, but they probably splurged in some areas, had some nice architectural features, and it can still be incredibly unhealthy, even if it's a beautiful building. So it's, it, you know, it's just like with humans, uh, a truly beautiful building, it's more than skin deep. It's more than looks. Absolutely. And it was, it was wild to hear her journey from the outside because it wasn't even necessarily one thing. It was the net effect of all of the things. So even as she was getting tested for some of the individual components, she wasn't showing significant reactions in her body to any one thing, but the net is where she really got into trouble. Yes. You know, that would be one of my big messages to the listeners today is it's called the rain barrel effect. So our bodies can take a lot of pressure, stress, toxins, but picture it like a rain barrel that it's just filling up drop at a time, drop at a time, maybe food intolerances, whatever it is. And then at a certain point, when we reach that lip, our bodies can no longer handle to detoxify us, provide us with the energy and vitality that we need to live a truly happy life. And it starts to spill over. And that might be the first time we start noticing symptoms that we're intolerant to a certain food, that our environment is the cause of a skin rash or just, you know, cognitive performance, having brain fog all the time. And Veronica, you also mentioned that you're helping people achieve a certain lifestyle. And, and using the construction of the home or the renovation to help them achieve it. What are some of the things your clients are looking for? I know every project is going to be different, but do, are you seeing any themes? There are several themes that I, I'm seeing that I think we're all seeing, which is really an awakening for how much our food matters. So a lot of people are starting to eat healthier living local diets, vegetable-based diets, even if they're not vegan or vegetarian. Another trend is a lot of self-growth centered around enlightenment, and it might you know, go into their yoga or body care practices or mindfulness practices. Those are the trends that we're, we're seeing, and so our architecture and design respond to those. So for example, one of our more recent projects is the Vera Iconica Kitchen. The Vera Iconica Kitchen was inspired from really my own frustration as a just a busy, you know, I on your uh, on a lot of things on your website you I let's see what what do you call it? Type A's perfectionists, <laughs> imposters and overscheduling addicts. That is definitely I'm guilty of all of those things. <laughs> And I would barely feed myself. Literally, I would forget to eat all day long and sometimes, you know, not drink very much. And I got pregnant. My husband and I got pregnant. And I realized that I was not treating myself very nicely. I would I would treat everybody better than what how I was treating myself. And I had to treat myself better for, you know, this new human I was growing or later breastfeeding. Um, and I, I actually happen to be pregnant with my second right now. Congratulations. So, <laughs> thank you. So for me personally, I've realized 
how much my environment can shift my behavior. And there's actually a practice of architecture called nudge architecture, and it's based off of environmental or nudge psychology. And it's how we can design the environments and put little cues in the environment that help shift our behavior towards healthier patterns. And that might be things like, you know, making a healthy breakfast in the morning or a a quick, convenient smoothie more convenient and more of a ritual, you know, making it more of an everyday practice. So when we look at our different clients, Vera Iconica means true likeness. And so with each of our clients, we're trying to find the essence of each client and combine it with the essence of the the site and the context that they're living in and and then also listen to how they want to live life what lifestyle do they want to achieve do they want to be more mindful do they want eating healthy to become more convenient for them and their families and we kind of take all of that and amalgamate it and say okay what kind of design strategies can we implement how does the space flow What materials can we use to set up a vitalizing environment or a very relaxing environment to achieve the outcomes that this client is looking for? This is so fascinating to me. And maybe it's because over the past year or so, I've really been geeking out a little bit and just on the side trying to learn more about human-centered design and kind of design thinking So what I'm hearing is you're really building in features for how people are really living on a case-by-case basis. Exactly. So you must have a huge intake and interview process as you're working with people, because not only are you trying to understand their design aesthetic, you're also having to ask all of these really personal questions about kind of how they're living, right? Yes. So some of our more successful projects are projects where I've actually gone and spent time in the client's existing homes with their families or have known them on a deeper level before. For clients that come to us that that we don't know, we really work to establish the relationship, not only to be able to design better, but we love what we do. We're a small boutique firm and building trust and relationships with the people that we're serving is really makes it a joy because the there's a lot of trust that needs to go in there when we recommend something or when we're looking, you know, we're really caring for clients' budgets and their significant investments in, you know, their portfolios and their assets. And so we we really take a lot of responsibility and are honored to do that for them that you're absolutely right in order to do that correctly and and in order to make appropriate suggestions on where and how they're spending their money and how the value to them not just in terms of the cost but the actual return on wellness and well-being for them and their families that's a very important thing that we look at and we do have to get to know each client in order to to help make those decisions. That is so cool. 
And I, I want to learn more about what are some of the features? Like, do you have any examples of, like, say you have a client that's really focused on mindfulness. What might be some ways to make that easier for them to facilitate? So we have had multiple clients where mindfulness is one of their daily practices and providing a space for that activity to happen daily, comfortably, and without too much effort is really important. For example, you can't go into a space early in the morning and clean up your office papers or your kids' toys and then sit down and meditate or worse, leave the clutter surrounding you and try and have a a good deep meditation. (laughs) So making sure that there's an appropriate space for that activity to happen. And then the really big part of what we do is really paying attention to some of the less scientific and functional and the more esoteric elements of the space. So that might be the materials that that we're surrounded by. Every Every material that we're surrounded by has a different impact on us, whether we're conscious of it or not. For example, the University of British Columbia did a study, and what they wanted to look at is if people could actually tell the difference or if it made a difference if they were surrounded by wood versus synthetic materials. And so they built offices that looked exactly identical, except for one was white, kind of a white plasticky look that you've seen in some offices. And another one had a wood veneer over it. And most people preferred the wood veneered office, but whether they preferred it or not consciously, they found that when their heart rate and blood pressure was monitored, they actually physiologically relaxed. So it was shifting how their parasympathetic nervous system was responding just to the room. Exactly. And then they did two more levels of that same study. And what they, they did one blindfolded and they had people touch materials that seemed to have the same texture, but one was synthetic and one was wood. And then they did another one where they blindfolded people and put them in rooms, one with a wood slab and one without, and the body repeated it. So that's really profound if you think about it. Without consciously knowing that you're surrounded by a material or even subconsciously seeing it, our bodies are responding to our environments and the materials around them. And not just in an off-gassing, toxic type of way. So this is where we go from, you know, what I would call health architecture. Health architecture focuses on making sure nothing's killing you or harming you. But then it goes into wellness architecture. And wellness architecture, we make sure that you have healthy materials, but then each material is impacting you in a different way. And a lot of that is based off of the designer's intuition and environmental sensitivity to really be able to make that space helpful. So if it comes to a mindfulness space, you know, that might be a softer feel of a space. You want to go in and you want to, you know, be at peace, detach from your thoughts and 
connect to something higher. So we look at sacred geometry. We look at materials. Um, often we'll look at if there's a way to connect you to nature or a peaceful scene or a shrine, depending on, you know, religious practices or beliefs. So the, that, that's kind of an example, taking the mindfulness practice and how we might apply it to a particular client's life or space. Fascinating. And are you also looking at sound engineering and things like that? Like I think about, because I record this podcast in a room upstairs in my house and I'm, I'm thinking about sound, but I'm thinking about, wow, that would be amazing if I was meditating every morning and there was a room that was really quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So acoustics are huge. I think that they're one of probably the more underutilized tools that really impact our sense of well-being and our ability to concentrate, to sleep. You know, we're, we're constantly used to background noise in our life, everything from digital noise to actual noise. You know, our, the worlds that we live in today are busy and noisy, and we are so ocular centric. We're so focused on looks and looks are important and aesthetics are a part of well-being. So so I'm not downplaying that by any means. You, you need to be in beautiful, appealing, attractive spaces. At the same time, that's only one of our five senses. And I would say we have even more senses than that, you know, so acoustics are very important. Smells are also important. Textures or our bodies are have the ability to feel the vibrations of every material. When we walk across the floor, we know if we're walking across something hard and cold and bone jarring like concrete or something that has a little bit more give like wood. And all of those go into the how we experience a space. They end up impacting us psychologically as well as physiologically. And so that material palette does need extra consideration in terms of all of our senses and not just visual. Got it. This portion of the conversation really resonates with me, not even just because I record the podcast in a home office, but I think it's something after years of living in the city or years of living in New York, I always thought it was interesting like when restaurants had a big opening and I'd be excited to go check it out and it would be really beautiful. And then I found I could always feel this gap with places. And one is if it looked beautiful, but I couldn't hear the person across the table from me, (laughs) which would drive me nuts. Like it's this beautiful space. And then they just totally forgot that the people that are actually supposed to be enjoying themselves there should actually be able to hear themselves over normal restaurant noise. (laughs) <laughs> and many a nights I come home with my my voice shredded because I've had to speak significantly louder than I normally would. And the other thing, and I'm glad you brought up the, the sense of smell, I always, this is my persnicketiness coming through, but when you've spent all this time and money to create a beautiful space and many times have it sound great and you hear people and you're enjoying yourself and then you go to the restroom and like the whole area where that is stinks and there's bad, disgusting hand soap 
that doesn't smell nice <laughs> and it's a horrible experience. Yeah, those are excellent examples. And the the acoustics with your particular example you're talking about right there is you might not actually enjoy the people that you're talking to as much because subconsciously, if you're a little bit aggravated by straining to listen to them and annoyed that you have to work so hard and that there's so many distractions, that's not only stressful, you know, subconsciously or taking more energy from you, it can also shift your mood. So even though you're really happy to be with somebody that you may not have seen in a while and you're excited to catch up with them, you're conversation can actually shift because your mood has shifted and it might not be as enjoyable of an experience as if those things are appropriately dealt with. I can believe it because there's definitely nights I've gotten into the car and looked at my husband and I'm like, I'm drained (laughs) (laughs) and not, you know, not by anything related to the person or even the fact that I'm like 45% introvert. Right. Like I feel like there's a lot of things being balanced, but there are definitely some nights where I I feel really grateful that I got to spend time with someone that I know and care about. But then at the same time, like, oh, that was a that felt like doing the half marathon version of that visit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm I'm definitely introverted, so I expend a lot of energy socializing and I enjoy doing it, but it, it does take it out of me. And yeah, those loud restaurants or certain distracting environments just make it difficult and stressful and take that much more energy out of you. Absolutely. You just feel the battery run down faster and faster. Yes. And I, I think that these things that you and I are talking about, everybody is having experiences like this. They're paying more attention. As we get higher up on Maslow's pyramid, these things start to matter to us. The amount of energy we have at the end of the day matters. Many of us are trying to do something with our life. We have purposeful and purpose-driven lives, and we need all of our energy to go out there in the world and make the change that we're trying to make. And if we're drained tired, lethargic, have brain fog, we can't go do our best. We can't help others. We can't serve the world with our talents and efforts the way that we want to. Absolutely. And I think I've spent a lot of time from from my work looking at the kitchen in terms of where can we clean things up? Like where can we get the gross pile of chemicals that live under the sink you know, eight eight <laughs> feet away from where you might be preparing all your food, where can we get that stuff out, both in the kitchen and in the bathroom? And then also kind of thinking about, well, what are the things that we need to bring in, right? Like, what are the foods? And that in and of itself is an enormous question. We have to be looking at the quality of foods. We have to be looking at the right mix of foods for each person. I'm generally working with the woman in the household, but there are all the other stakeholders that also eat in the kitchen and participate in the kitchen that we need to consider. And then kind of thinking about what tools, what methods of cooking are easy or appropriate for that person? What tools do you need for that? I'm kind of coming in at that level. 
what you're talking about is so amazing because you're almost like hijacking that. Like, can you talk about kitchens a little bit more? <laughs> yeah. So we just did a project called Vera Iconica Kitchen or the Wellness Kitchen. And it it got recognized as one of the top trends for 2018, which was really exciting. Woo, congrats. Yeah, thank you. We're, we, we were very honored. But, but yeah, it came from this frustration I, I was talking about earlier of I could barely even feed myself, let alone nourish my family. I, I was so frustrated. And I looked around the kitchen. I was like, these kitchens are ridiculous. They just are full of these dark cupboards and dark pantries with boxed and packaged food that's preservative-laden, designed to last months, if not years, and it's gross. And then we're supposed to heat this up as fast as we possibly can and shovel it in our mouths as we run out the door. None of that's healthy. That's not healthy for our digestion, for our body to be able to absorb nutrients. It's It doesn't help us relax or calm ourselves or put a ritual around something that that we need to live. I started thinking about how in the 1950s, there were so many wonderful innovations around convenience. And really that, I mean, that was just this really special era with, you know, TV dinners and microwaves and mixers and, uh, you know, frozen food and all of these things that were really helped save time. But what we have all discovered now 60, 70 years later, is that a lot of those innovations, although they helped save time and helped women who were getting into careers at that point still cook and prepare food for their family, they set up a lot of unhealthy habits that have led to disease and illness. Absolutely. So that really kind of inspired this idea that our kitchens have changed very little in the last 75 years. And they, they really need to be reimagined around how do we add convenience to a healthy diet? And when we went in to define healthy diet, what we said is, okay, we're not going to, again, prescribe to any one particular trend or strain like vegan, paleo, you know, Forget all of that. We're going to say that what is healthiest is when your food is closest to its natural state, has minimal processing or packaging surrounding it. So whatever you're choosing to eat, if it's natural and the less adulterated is, how do we design a kitchen to help keep that food fresh, easy to consume? How is it delivered? How is it disposed of? And, and then we also took some of these other things that I've been talking about, this nudge architecture or environmental psychology and saying, how can we just make the, the kitchen a more joyful space to begin with? So that's been a really f- fun project. And, and I, I think we just need to go through room by room of our house and think of how we can kind of empower better living habits. Another one that kills me, just like what you were saying about having chemicals in your kitchen. Who decided chemicals belong in the kitchen? They belong so far from the kitchen. 
I, I have actually replaced all of my chemical cleaners uh, clean with all natural products today. But, you know, it's absurd that all of us keep the most toxic things in our food spaces. That's crazy. Another thing that I think is crazy is defecating in the same space that you're doing this joyful washing cleansing ritual. I mean, bathrooms are just kind of funny to me. They just because they have plumbing doesn't mean those two activities belong next to each other. <laughs> I never would have thought of that. But yes, I totally <laughs> feel your point right here. That's amazing. So you're really, really trying to shift how we look at a kitchen. Yes. So Veronica, I have to ask, when you are kind of on the forefront of something new, it could conceivably generate some pushback. How are people responding to your work and what you're trying to do? Well, there's two types of pushback that we get. One is when we share ideas with everyday friends, family, colleagues, collaborators with you today. The responses we're getting is people want this and people need this. And some people have been craving it or they didn't even know that architecture or their buildings might be hurting them and that architecture can help them, that their their buildings and the place that they live and work could actually be hurting their cognitive performance or their kids' behavioral development. You know, so pe- some people are really intrigued to learn about how this is impacting them and those that have already become aware of it are just grateful that people are starting to, you know, and companies like ours are starting to focus on this and, and have solutions. So we don't get too upset if we, if we do are talking about something like this and somebody doesn't like what we have to say, first of all, we're finding you know, those people or those conversations are fewer and far between, which is wonderful. But now if I have some pushback, just when we're kind of sharing this idea of the difference between health architecture and wellness architecture, that wellness architecture encompasses all dimensions of well-being, including the ones that are harder to talk about, like spiritual or emotional, you know, not just the physical, psychological, you know, an environmental type of concerns. We're talking about all of those. So if if somebody doesn't like the fact that we're also bringing in emotions or spirituality into how we design a space, frankly, it just doesn't bother me anymore. Where in the past, when I was at the forefront and not a lot of people were talking about this, I probably didn't have the confidence and therefore any disparaging remarks would kind of disappoint me or make me question it. But at this point, I'm like, okay, it's just, it. you know, I know it's still impacting them. So, you know, with that confidence, whether somebody really appreciates it or not, I know that we can still improve their life on a subconscious level. And it's, that's just a fact, you know. And then on a another level of pushback is when we're actually, as architects, trying to make design real. And we really strive to design far above code and far above conventional design practices. And so we get a lot of pushback from contractors and tradespeople who are ultimately liable for the work that they're producing. 
and we're asking them to go in and do something that they've never done before. And that's, and at the same time, we're liable for it too. They're not the only one liable for it, but you know, so there's a lot of business risk to that. There's a lot of unknowns. So if they have to do a cost estimate or a timeline and they have to do something for the first time, they might not know about it. If they have to think about how that material or that building assembly is going to react years down the road and they're not sure of it because they haven't done it and they have to take our word for it. Those are very tricky positions to be in. And what we find is, you know, some contractors are willing to work with us and are excited and, you know, they're, they're willing to take a little bit of risk, but they're, they're also willing to do enough research to understand that it's not really risk. It's perceived risk. And there's a difference. There's a difference of being fearful of the unknown just because you haven't done it versus specifying something that is proven to work over centuries and it just might not be today's common practice. So those are kind of the building techniques that we look for. And uh, we still get pushback with some contractors and they'll go back to the client and they'll say, hey, there's a cheaper way to build this. And the client says, oh, good, Ar architect, why did you why did you not specify the cheaper way to, to do it? And so we have to explain to him, well, because that'll not only poison the planet, which you may or may not care about, but that'll poison your family. And ethically, we can't specify something that we know is poisonous. And then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, this this has to be a huge pain point. And the reason I say this is I'm here in the Catskills now, and there was a fair earlier this year in Hudson, New York, called One Fair. And they brought in people that did solar, all sorts of different heating, cooling, and also different builders that were using new or different technology. Maybe technology is not the right word. Materials, but also design, like Passive House, things like that. So they brought together a lot of these people, but I thought one of the most interesting conversations that I heard over the course of the day was this couple that, like my husband and I, were first-time home buyers buying a house, quote-unquote, in the country. And their experience in Woodstock was horrifying, where they bought this house and there were major problems with the roof and it flooded the entire inside of the house, destroying the walls and everything. So what they thought was going to be just some new smaller projects and some aesthetic stuff now was re having to do a gut renovation and removing all of the guts of the house to do this. So when they got to that point, they sort of decided, we want to make this as close to net zero as possible, if not better. And the horror stories that they had, they finally found one contractor that had knowledge about what they were trying to do and sort of helped shepherd them through the process. But they talked about like every single contractor they worked with, every single person they brought in, basically just lectured them on, oh, aren't you too cute what you're trying to do? You can't do that. It's not possible. <laughs> and it was just hearing their half an hour talk was exhausting to just even take in. 
And I'm, I'm sort of in admiration of like how much they took on themselves to make it happen. But nothing about the process seemed easy along the way, except for one person in the process that was like, this can be done. You might only get to 95% or 90% of where you're going, but it's still going to be this much better than conventional buildings and, you know, really understanding like those trade-offs. And it it was exhausting to hear. I can't imagine what it was like to live for, I don't know, probably over the course of one or two years for them. Oh, yeah. Draining emotionally, mentally, financially. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've actually had a client in the, uh, in actually that similar area go through the a very similar experience. So I, I can sympathize. Because <laughs> does most of that fall on you as the architect or is it more the client taking the heat? No, I think most of the heat falls on the architect to make sure that the specifications and the design intent meet the owner's vision and then making sure that that design intent is followed on site. And that's a really important part of what architects do during the construction phase. You know, a lot of people might say, oh, we, you know, we just need a design and then we can go build it with our builder. That's when you're in a position where you start getting a lot of that pushback. But as an owner, you're not educated or prepared to know what you really can or can't do and what's what's reasonable. And so that's why keeping your design team on board to make sure that that in design intent is followed all the way through the project is key because as the owner, your job is to set the vision and the requirements for a project and and stick to what's important to you and not, not compromise where you don't need to compromise. And then the architect is there to be your advocate and to, to know when something really can't be done and the plan needs to shift a little bit, or if it, if it's just a matter of kind of helping educate um, and help provide options and collaborate with the contractor to turn it into reality. Got it. Got it. It sounds like your confidence has grown and also your skin has gotten thicker from where you said you were when you were sort of feeling people's opinions kind of shifting you or making you doubt where you were going. This is something that comes up a lot in the work that I do. Can you speak to what helped you kind of develop that thicker skin or just feel like you were able to to take the opinions but not have to absorb them all? <laughs> it's a combination of experience and knowing your inner truth. And I think that as you gain experience, you start to understand, especially as a, as a woman, you learn to listen to your intuition you learn to value it and you really learn to trust it. And I think sometimes before hitting a certain level of maturity, it's really easy to to kind of know something, have a gut feeling about something, but then talk ourselves into, oh no, that can't be right, or no, they're they're not really meaning to do that, or 
you know, we, we make excuses. We want to accommodate other people. We want to help them. But at the end of the day, we might not be doing our best service to them by not voicing that. And so I think, you know, in general as, as women, but it would apply to men too, is sometimes we have to learn that the best way to serve or help someone is to listen to that inner truth, to be confident in it and to tell somebody no, or to stick to our guns. Have you found saying no is something that's an easy skill for you? No, it's a recently learned skill set, probably developed in the last couple of years, but um, I'm a, I'm a middle child. So I think by nature, I like to make sure everybody's happy and <laughs> I'd rather probably do a little extra work if it means making people happy. And, but what I've learned from that is a lot of times when I go out of my way to really accommodate something or, you know, make an unhappy person happy, you can't make some people happy. And you end up often looking like the bad guy when you're going out of your way to, to help you know, sometimes things have a way of an ironic way of backfiring. And so I think after years of experience, you know, not letting it make you go the opposite route, but kind of finding that, that balance of knowing, you know, wanting to help or serve people, but knowing your inner truth, knowing your limitations, and knowing what's realistic. And if somebody's asking you to do something that isn't possible instead of your gut being like, no, no, don't do it. You can't do it. And then your mouth says, yes, learning to say, oh, well, I see what you're trying to do. My gut tells me that we're not going to be able to get that done. What about this? And just kind of being able to work through a situation. And if, if people keep pushing, then saying, okay, no, that's not, not realistic. You know, I'm, I'm not going to commit to something that I I can't deliver on. Yes. Yes. And I can totally relate. I I feel like this comes up in my world a lot. You know, like, especially when people are kind of comparing coaches and coaching programs and things like that. You know, I feel like it is so important to work from a place of integrity. And I think you know, some people like to promise, well, yeah, you can lose weight in 14 minutes and still eat chocolate and drink champagne all the time. And I'm always really straight with people in initial conversations. Like, you know, it may have taken you 40 plus years to develop all of these craptastic habits. And it's, you're going to have to invest at least six months into us fixing that and trying to understand and unwind what's driving what's going on in your body. And I think that really freaks some people out. But like you, I so deeply believe in, I don't want to overpromise and not be able to deliver. Yes. And it sounds like with what you're doing, I mean, the expense and the time and the energy that gets drawn into these projects is huge compared to what I'm talking about. So because of the length of time of each project and the amount of effort that you invest, you also learn that it's not worth your time and the sacrifices you are going to have to make in your quality of life to serve somebody that is asking you to do something 
that's not realistic, not viable, not ethical, or maybe it is realistic and it's a good project, but they just simply don't value what you do. It's not worth it. And I've definitely, you know, I started this company eight years ago, almost nine years ago. And after being in business that long, you know, in the beginning, you do, you do make mistakes, the same mistakes that every other entrepreneur is making, no matter what field there is, you take on business and projects and clients that, that you need because you're, you're still trying to establish yourself. And so you don't like turning down work. You like saying yes to everything. And it really only takes a few projects that aren't great. And a few mean people to say, that is not actually worth the money or to realize that those projects don't wind up being profitable. And it's actually a smart business decision to say no. Yes, I definitely have had that experience. And it it only really has to happen like once or twice where you, you, you say yes to that client that you know, you're meeting with them, you're getting a sense of what they're looking for. And you're thinking, it sort of sounds like a fit. I, this sounds like a fit. And then <laughs> you just find like, those are the clients that exhaust you every step of the process. Yeah, if you have to talk yourself into why it is good, it's not. Again, use your intuition. It either is or it's not. And you know that from the first few moments. <laughs> yes, this is where Malcolm Gladwell's blink. I remember when I read that. And what was the other one years earlier? Um, no, there's a book. What was it's the book is called The Gift of Fear. And it was written by someone who did criminal profiling. And I can't, re- I want to say the last name is Becker or DeBecker, and I can throw it in the show notes for anyone listening. But it was about how people who had been assaulted or attacked in some sort of violent way often had signs, even these like really small micro signs, that something was not right in the situation. And from from his perspective in the criminal world, talking about like interviewing these people and really trying to understand intuition and what that looked like, and then also kind of looking at how serial killers also understood that kind of psychology and often knew how to counter those moments where you you feel that doubt and then they they would be ready to try to make you question your own doubt. And it was it's a fascinating read, but it was also surprising like how quickly and subconsciously we are we're building the picture. Are we safe or are we not safe? Right. It sounds like you've gotten really comfortable in that front, like really assessing things in a gut way. Are there any habits or practices or mindsets that the listeners can learn from if they're having trouble kind of tapping into their own intuition? I guess I would start by asking each individual, do you notice your intuition? Because if if you notice it and are ignoring it, that's one thing. And if you're just not even recognizing what intuition or gut reactions you're having, that's another thing. Uh, so I think the, the first step is just placing awareness on it 
and starting to call it what it is. Not What I mean by that is not letting it be a subconscious thought or passing feeling that is swept underneath the rug. Acknowledging, recognizing that thought, that feeling. Pausing your mind for long enough to say, okay, what is that thought or feeling telling me? And then let your mind kick back in to make a decision. And when that happens, just start to respect or honor that decision. And if you don't and you make a different decision, just start keeping track of how often that gut reaction was correct. And I think really just placing awareness on it will make you start honoring those gut feelings more and more because more often than not, they're correct. So the first step is really just paying attention to them. Yes. That nagging little voice, that whisper that's like, eh, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to take this on? Yes. And also recognizing that it's not always going to be in words. I mean, one of the things I'm probably quasi-famous for saying to a lot of my clients at this point was, were you expecting your body to give you an email or a text message, right? Like we have to think about like just how we're feeling certain situations in our body. Oh yeah. Right? Like, I mean, you know, when you're probably interviewing a client or in any sort of social situation that doesn't feel right, just it may not even be a subconscious thought or a conscious thought. It may not even be a verbal thought. It may just be, man, every time I interact with that person, my stomach hurts. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And, and in the, absolutely. And in the example you just gave, you know, if you're interviewing for a job, either as staff or as a service firm, there is a difference between selling and sharing, you know, coming to that meeting and being confident and you are selling your services, you're putting your best foot forward. But if your mindset is to bring in the business. I got to bring in this business. I have to show them how amazing we're going to be. This is going to be a great project. They want us and I'm going to show them why they want us. If you go in with that mindset, it's going to be very hard for you to notice any gut reactions you're having, as well as to give time to the other party to show some of their true colors and what's important to them. And so I think making sure that you show up to something and with the respect and, and I guess holding the space for the the possibility that you are interviewing them as much as they are interviewing you. And that in order for you to do your best work, you need to love working for them and they need to really appreciate and value your services. And so it has to be a back and forth. It's not just you selling and you serving and you going after something, but that kind of relationship and back and forth is what's really going to make a successful collaborative effort. And so showing up to that first meeting with that mentality will allow you to even have and listen to those gut reactions. So important. I'm glad you doubled down on that. because it, And I think for people listening who aren't in any sort of service industry, like Veronica and I, this same advice can be applied to 
applying to college or applying for a new job in any career. It always should be a two-way street and and leaving the space for that realness to come up. Like like it should be a two-way interview. Yes. Veronica, this is a little bit of a sideways question, but I'm sure something you have to navigate a lot in your world just because of the size and scope of the projects. Finances may also be a thing. And so I'm picturing there may be some people listening who are like, what it sounds like she's doing is amazing, but I may not have the budget for a gut renovation or to build a new house that's much more well-being focused. What can those people listening do in their own houses? <laughs> and I know so, this is a giant question, but I'm sure it comes up a lot for you. <laughs> oh, no. So at, at one point, I actually, my sister and I were talking about starting a company. Uh, and, and she's actually moving for, forward. Her company is called Clean Clarity. But starting a company that helped people detox and organize their life. I, I am an architect, but I don't take pride in doing architecture. I take pride in designing life enhancing experiences. And so it just happens that that architecture is my medium, if you will. I was thinking about playing with another medium. And that would be, you know, helping people go into their homes and really uh, people need a little bit of help with this, but not as much as they think you can do this on your own. But what we did is we we did a kind of a pilot case study at, at my own house. And we went through, first of all, every single cupboard. And I read every single label of food that I had in my house. And if it had something that I couldn't pronounce or couldn't understand where it came from in nature, I donated it. And I replaced it with something that didn't have preservatives and that only had words that I knew where they came from in nature. So that's how I started with the kitchen. Then I went to my cleaning products and I did the same thing. And it is an amazing, I replaced, I think around $480 of cleaning supplies. I I donated them to a local shelter that is always in need of of supplies Mm -hmm. with $35 of baking soda, vinegar, and essential oils. And those are the type of products now that I use to clean my house. Basically, you could, or my son, my children, could eat anything in my cleaning closet if they really wanted to. It probably wouldn't taste good, but if they wanted to, (laughs) I'd probably laugh and not call poison control. So, uh, you know, then that went to cosmetics and body care. And then it... we continued on into the storage rooms and closet spaces. And basically, what is that book called? The Joy, Spark Joy? Is that? Oh, are you thinking of the Marie Kondo one? Yeah, I think so. What is it? The Magical Art of Tidying Up? Yes. Something like that. And I think Spark Joy might be another one. We'll have to fact check that. We will. We will. I'll take care of that. <laughs> but so we we used kind of those books as inspiration. So really anybody could go read those books. And what you do is you go and you throw all of your clothes on the floor. And one by one, 
you pick them up and if they bring you joy and you feel good and your body feel, you know, you feel confident in your body wearing them, you put them back on a hanger. And I was doing this process with my sister and I thought I pick out probably a few items. I I don't go shopping very much. I have, I go for quality, not quantity, but I'll clean out my sparse closet every once in a while and donate something. You know, if I haven't worn it in a year, I donate it. So very confidently, I looked at my sister and was like, I do not need to throw all of my clothes on the floor because I already have cleaned out my closet. We're not going to make that much progress here. (laughs) And she, she made me do it anyways. And I had actually just cleaned my closet out probably a month beforehand. And I told her that and was like, really, this is pointless. You're just causing extra work. I'm going to have to rehang all of these. But there is something psychological that happens when you throw your clothes on the floor versus on a hanger, you perceive them different and you, they're not as valuable to you when they're on a heap on the floor. And when you pick something up on a heap and you look at it and you again, pay attention to that gut reaction, do I actually like this or wear it? Oh no, it scratches, it itches. I, you know, I discarded so many more items that I didn't even think was possible. So, you know, really, if you're going to go through this process, any one of the examples I just gave from kitchen to cleaning supplies to closets, give it your all. Don't don't let yourself make little excuses like, oh, well, this canned food might have melodextrose in it, but I need it for this recipe. No, get rid of it and then go find something. There is something else out there that doesn't have those toxins and preservatives in it that you can replace it with. And just my message would be fully commit. You can do it yourself. And there's a lot you can do without taking it to the level of architecture. At the end of the day, this is your lifestyle, your space, how you want to live, how you want to enhance your well-being, and all of these little choices you're making matter. Absolutely. You are preaching to the choir here in La Vital Core Salon. And I I think you and I share a lot of the same habits And what is great about the method that you're talking about, and I think what makes it so brilliant, is you're also leveling the playing field. And I think of this and talk about this with clients a lot when they're overwhelmed by their task list and having to prioritize things. When you're kind of stacking things against each other and putting like things together. So like what you're talking about, like when you take out all your shirts out of your closet, And, you know, for people who are listening who are like, it would be so overwhelming to do this all at once, then just pick a type of thing, like pick shirts. This weekend, you're going to work on just shirts. And you really do get a different sense, like, especially when you're holding two articles of the same thing at once. And I thought I would never be able to get rid of books, and I've been starting to go through books, which in some terms I consider friends. But even I'm noticing now when I'm holding two of them in my hands and even just comparing them against each other, I can feel the difference. Like, oh, I, I really like this book on the right better. I'm, I'm willing to keep this and find a room on that one bookshelf I want to have instead of three bookshelves versus this one in my left hand that, yeah, I may reference it again, but I can also just get it out of the library. Or Google it. <laughs> or Google it at this point. Or Audible it. Or... <laughs> 
Veronica, I want to ask a a different question because I think we are talking about well-being and wellness in so many different senses. But how do you define wellness for yourself? And what, if any, are some of your healthy habits or practices that may surprise some of the people listening? Well, what I hope doesn't surprise the people listening is that I am constantly struggling through having healthy lifestyle habits and my habits are constantly shifting. So nobody is alone in wishing they had a better wellness program for their life. <laughs> I think most people, there's some lucky few out there. I think most people are are struggling. So for example, you know, working out or exercising is so important. Again, I I have trouble even feeding myself health or I used to. I, I've done better now that I that I have kids in my body. You know, if if my body isn't healthy, I see it in my milk supply or um, you know, things like that. So I actually do take care of my my eating habits and nourishment, um, much more so, but that that didn't come until I was doing it for somebody else, which it, which is sad. So I hope I hope none of the listeners, you know, need to get pregnant before they take care of their bodies, but hopefully can learn from my realization of how bad I was taking care of myself and how it's not okay to, you know, skip meals or, um, you know, not drink any water all day long just because you're so busy running so fast, you know, take that break, take care of yourself. So that's one thing that I am doing. But, you know, when it comes to, exercise, meditation, yoga. I love doing those things. And I'll, ha- I'll go through these spells where I'll do a great job. And then I might go through a three to six month period where I don't do anything. And I can start feeling it either in my body or in my mind. I get monkey mind and my thought chatter is worse. And my, I wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety and I'm like, oh, I haven't actually meditated or done anything you know, to calm myself in months and I, I start seeing it. So I pick it back up. So, you know, really for me, it's an ebb and flow and I'm, I'm still working on it. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to find this balance between a really healthy life, but being a mom and, uh, being an entrepreneur, having a career. And another thing that I do that we haven't talked about is, I chair the wellness architecture initiative for the global wellness Institute. And so I arrange international think tanks and thought leadership platforms that also take a lot of time and energy. So I'm always putting myself out there. And a lot of times it is to my own detriment or the detriment of uh, my wellness practices. So still, still learning those lessons. Veronica, I so appreciate you climbing down from a pedestal and and just being very real with people cuz i know this is one of the things that got me to start this podcast in 2016 cuz i was looking at what i was talking about in sessions and realizing there's so much shame especially among the go-getting type A's overachievers that i often work with there's so much shame that a lot of times it takes them months to even reach out to me. I think the longest someone has said, I had your card on my desk for, 
I think it was f- almost five years before <laughs> they reached out and said, I need some help. So I think there's some stigma around trying to get it right. Having this like really lofty kind of definition of what wellness is. And then, you know, you read articles in the New York Times, especially like the magazine of these people that are living this like perfect wellness life and kicking ass and taking names professionally. And they have five kids and they don't have a nanny. And you're like, where do they find these unicorns? But the reality (laughs) is a lot of what you're talking about, like it is something that you're constantly trying to balance And that's what I talk about with my clients a lot behind the scene. I I always tell them because I work with women, like we're going to talk about getting dressed, using the acronym DRESS for diet and rest and exercise and stress management and social relationships. So sort of looking at it through a functional health, functional nutrition kind of lens. And I think people get really overwhelmed in the beginning of the process thinking that they have to be getting an A plus on every single one of those fronts at once. But it's really starting to look at like, how am I taking care of myself today? Which of those areas do I just need to focus on the most? And some days you can really nail three of those areas and be doing a great job. And then life throws something your way and maybe you're just you're dropping habits, right? Like you were talking about in terms of, yeah, I haven't done any mindfulness work in like a month. And that's why I'm up in the middle of the night with my wheels spinning. Yeah. A funny story. Well, I think it's funny is I was such a perfectionist when I was younger. I was actually living in Peru at the time working for an architect. And I had a book, a yoga book called Eight Weeks to Balance. (laughs) And I worked on, I I lived there for nine months and I never made it past week four because you were supposed, it was seven days a week. Well, you, you took the seventh day off. It was six days a week and it was this program. And if I missed a day or two days, (laughs) I felt like I needed to start over because I, gosh darn it, I was going to do this program perfectly. And if you think about how insanely silly and ridiculous that is, you know, if there's any story that you have like that in your own life, you do not need to be perfect to be getting a benefit. And you can keep progressing through something, even if there is a delay, even if there's a delay in your meditation for a month, who cares? It didn't hurt you. And you can still get to where you need to go. You know, we have these silly expectations um, of ourselves sometimes. And we just, the perfectionist in us needs to become more laid back, more understanding and being like, okay, great. Nothing has happened, but I can, I can just pick it back up and I can keep going. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you are a healthy, happy person, you know, or striving to be, keep striving, keep going and don't beat yourself up. I think about this even in my own body, like years ago, when I was more into running half marathons and and things like that, and trying to lose weight. And I don't know if you realize this, if you saw this on my website, but my background was as a CPA doing trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy. So basically, I've had a long career of 
cleaning up messes. I'm sort of a fixer. But I come from that mindset and that way of thinking, you know, you debit and you credit and you account for things and you measure things. And so when I used to be training for those races, it was actually kind of before Fitbits and all that existed. So I mean, really, it was like, I'd go for a run, I'd use a timer, come home, update my spreadsheet, you know, based on what my time was and what the run that I did, the training run that I did. And it took all the joy out of it. And when I just years later, and and now this is still how I'm kind of rolling, just figured out I need to move my body at least 30 minutes to an hour a day. And that's my goal these days. And every day is different. You know, if it's a low energy day or the weather's really garbage outside, then it might be yoga inside. And if it's a day that, oh man, I have a lot of energy or I'm feeling kind of restless, I'm going to go burn it out with a run and look, it's, you know, sunny and 74 today here. And just letting that be an organic process. And that was when, you know, I like I don't have trouble maintaining my weight anymore like I used to. And I realized it was it was the perfectionism rolling into everything else. Yeah. And it's amazing, like how much easier stuff becomes when you're just like, ah, who gives a shit how fast that race training run was today <laughs> yeah I I also that that same year when I started to fail miserably at my eight-week program and I and I realized it I started to say okay I'm just gonna do something every day I'm gonna go to the gym every day and if I don't feel like working out I'm gonna sit in the sauna and unlike this yoga book that's not working well for me <laughs> I'm not gonna keep track I'm not gonna keep track of how many days I just walked there and did nothing but shower because the shower was nicer than my Peruvian apartment. I'm just going to go and enjoy myself and do whatever I think and stop keeping track. And when I looked back, I was actually working out happily six days a week when before I had trouble taking myself to the gym three days a week because I was being hard on myself and it was ridden with guilt instead of joy and no pressure. And that was a big lesson for me to learn as a perfectionist um, to really just help myself. You know, my mom once said to me, Veronica, quit being so mean to yourself. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, you can't be mean to yourself. Like, how can you be mean to your own being? And I realized that you can and that some of us are horribly mean to ourselves. But that realization didn't even occur to me. And so learning to have very high expectations for yourself, but still be kind to yourself. I think that's a lesson that some of us have to learn or have already learned that have really helped us. And how do you balance that with the pace that you run? Because you are really, you're kicking ass and taking names professionally. You're pregnant and about to be a mom for the second time. I think for people listening, like, how do you, how do you balance that? Is there anything that helps you keep that intent in focus as you're consciously making decisions during the day? Well, I do have to admit that some days I'm so busy that I, <laughs> and I have so many balls in the air. You know, some, there, there's, there's certain levels. There's some levels where you took care of everything you needed to take care of and you have a manageable number of emails in your inbox. 
And then there's another level and it's, you're just juggling and you're just trying to keep mm-hmm. the balls in the air and keep, you just prevent one from falling. And then there's another level that I've been at. And that one, that one's called praying and being <laughs> saying, dear God, please help me to do everything that's really important and has to be done today. Please help me not to forget one of those things. <laughs> Because there's just too much going on. So I at, at any given moment, I might be in, in one of those areas. But a lesson that I have learned is I have a really amazing team around me and support system, both, both family-wise and um, in my company. And there's no way I could do the things that I do without their support. And not only their brilliant talent and skill set in our architectural firm, but also, I, th- I think for a lot of women, sometimes we feel bad or guilty. You know, I used to work 80 to 100 hours a week. And A, that's not a healthy thing. And that certainly doesn't lead to a wellness lifestyle. Yes. And a huge barrier to creativity and innovation. Yes, all of those things. But I, at the same time, I had an amazing capacity to focus and to be creative for 12 to 16 hours a day, you know, I I wasn't being non-productive and, you know, wasn't just sitting there running stressed out. I was, I was producing, but I can't do that anymore. Uh, So there's a part of me that feels guilty. It feels like as the owner of the company, I should be working harder. I should be doing more. And, uh, you know, another lesson probably that I'm, I'm learning is uh, giving myself permission to still work very hard, but maybe not as hard as I have it in my mind um, that I'm supposed to be working and to not take on some things that really other very capable people can do. And as a type A business owner, that's sometimes one of the, and as as a growing business, when you, you grow beyond what you can personally manage, you have to let go of things. You have to empower other people And then you have to trust and stand behind the decisions that they make. And without doing those things, there's no way that I could continue to to make an impact in the wellness architecture space and be a mom and own a company. Yes. And it sounds like we're similar in that asking for help sometimes as recovering perfectionists can sort of be like kryptonite for us. Yeah. You know, or you don't have faith in other people to, they're not going to get it done as well as you could do it. And you, you have to let go of that and you have to give people faith and trust. Yes. So true. I remember when I first hired a virtual assistant to start helping me with different parts of the podcast and, and other parts of my business and even a creative project I'm working on. I was like, oh, should I do this? You know, I'm going to have to spend all this extra time training. And then it was like a month later, I thought to myself, why had I not done this months, if not years earlier? (laughs) Like, it just made everything so much better. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's also probably for some people listening, I, I have help at home too. We have, you know, amazing people that watch my son, And 
even help cook and grocery shop and the, you know, the healthy eating habits that I have today wouldn't be able to do them without her help. And if you would have asked me a year and a half ago, or, you know, if I even heard about a family that had a nanny a year and a half ago, I was like, that's insane. There's no way I can afford it. You know, and then you shift your mind and you say, okay, how could I afford it? Could it make sense? When would it make sense? And so, you know, we have somebody come one day a week that helps and that carries us through the entire week. That enables us to eat healthy just by prepping food, not even necessarily full meals, but helping, you know, we've learned what can be done in a day with the budget that we had to make the rest of the week go easier. Yes. And I've done this kind of reconciliation with clients in the past. And when we've really dug down into it and we looked at what would it cost you, you know, in terms of like, what do you make per hour versus what it would cost to bring in either a professional chef or subscribe to a meal delivery service or whatever the the workaround is so many times, like the math just didn't add up, but the story that people had told themselves about it comes <laughs> from some other place, right? Like only rich, snobby, mean people have a nanny or, you know what I mean? Like it was amazing as I've been working with women, especially around having help on the cleaning front. That seemed to be a bigger barrier than like offloading the cooking and, and kitchen pieces but it, it, it always has struck me how it's the story and then the reality when you actually measure it or look at it. Like, what is your time worth? What does this service cost? And it was usually the service in question, I would say a lot of the time, was never any more than 25% of what they were losing by using their own time to to clean the bathrooms or, or whatever. Yes. And then again, that's the financial side. Then factor in the return on wellness. And <laughs> I know that... Yes, which is when, harder to quantify for certain. Oh, but, but sometimes not, you know? I mean, if I come home from a long trip and my husband, who's not quite as tidy as me, clean <laughs> but not tidy, if I come home from a trip and the house got cleaned, I can come home and be like, oh, I'm so excited to see you. I love you. What should we do? Should we go relax? Well, if we don't have that cleaning help and I come home from a trip <laughs> and things are a wreck and I have to start cleaning, my attitude is the opposite. And instead of him having this wonderful, loving, sweet wife, he has somebody, why'd you do this? Why'd you leave this here? Why not? Now, Out of my way. I've got to clean yeah. the kitchen. I have to prepare for tomorrow. I don't know what's going you know, it, so that's measurable, not in the, not in the way we're used to measuring things, but that that's clear. And, uh, and it's worth every penny. Yes. Yes. And making it a conscious decision, right? Like for some people, like what we're talking about are really expensive things. There are things that you can trade that may not be serving you, right? Like I think back to when you were talking about cleaning out the closet for some people, you know, I, I've had clients who have very nice wardrobes and some designer pieces that are really nice. And they were feeling this friction between, you know, wanting to hire either a personal chef or someone to help clean or 
offloading maybe some professional piece of their job. You know, they were doing their own graphic design and they just weren't spending the money on that front either. But when you look at it in total, like there are things you can trade, like the designer clothes, the couple of dresses that you have that aren't doing anything can be sold to a consignment shop and that's going to buy you three months of not having to deal with this headache anymore. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you can move stuff around and be really flexible. Yes. And, you know, I, I actually talked to other successful career entrepreneur women who had had kids and they were all older than me and they were all more successful than me. And they all, the majority of them actually have a stay at home dad and they have help. And I was discouraged by that because I, I just knew that that wasn't my reality. And I, you know, my, my husband works and, um, and he's not going to stay at home. And I didn't think I could afford the help. And so I really had to start looking at it out of desperation, you know, so whether you have, whether you have somebody, you're lucky enough to have kind of a cheerleader in your life to kind of help you go through that exercise of helping you financially make it make sense, or you were like me and just had to figure something out. Whichever way it's driving you, I guess the point is, take a look at it. You might, and stay open-minded, you might be able to figure out a way to have something that you don't think that you could afford by, you know, any of the techniques that you just mentioned, you know, skipping something else in your budget that you might not even miss for something that you really need. Yes. And there's a probably a thousand more ways to do this. But I want to be respectful of your time today, Veronica. And this has been an amazing conversation. And we have taken so many twists and turns. I had no idea if we were going to talk more about the nuts and bolts of architecture. But this has been such a really great conversation. And I want to ask you one more question. From your experience or from this conversation, or something that just you thought of on the side that maybe we didn't even talk about, what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or take away from our conversation today? My hope for people's takeaway is that if you're not already, or even if you are, start paying attention to how your surroundings are impacting your health and well-being. We live in such a fast-paced frenetic world. And in today's world, we're surrounded by so many synthetics and chemicals from our, the food that we're consuming to the lotion we're putting onto our, our bodies or our children. And my message would really be to say to people that you deserve better. You know, don't just fall for the propaganda of products or lifestyle assumptions that you're being told you have to have. Really take a, take a moment to look around your surroundings, purify your life, use some of the, the, the tips or cleansing tricks that, that we've talked about here, and start surrounding yourself with something that can empower you to live the purpose-driven life that you're designed to live. And it doesn't have to be a full-scale architecture remodel. If it is one, I would love to help you with it, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be. It can, it can be, you know, really starting small. And I, I think that's really my main message is to just 
empower people and to be aware of what's in your environment because it could be stressing you to the point where it's inhibiting your own growth and your your own power and the impact you can make on your life and other people's life. Veronica, thank you so much. I am so excited to keep following along and see where you go in terms of wellness architecture and and how that that ripple keeps playing out. What you are doing is so cool and so impactful, and I'm so appreciative of your time here today. Yes, likewise. Thank you for having me. Hey there, this is your mildly brain-damaged, post-concussive host, Kara, again. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. And if you dug this episode with Veronica or what she's doing out in the world, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one woman you know and subscribing to this podcast wherever you play podcasts. And if you really want to be a superstar, go ahead and leave a review in iTunes. I know you hear me thank the production team behind La Vital Core Salon at the end of every episode, and that includes my husband and producer Craig Snyder and Darlene Victoria, my virtual assistant. But words cannot describe how thankful I am to have them in my corner over the last few weeks. With their love, patience, and energy, choo-choo, they kept this train on the tracks and podcasts rolling out when I was just busy staring aimlessly at my bird feeder. And as you cruise back into your day or evening or nighttime, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.